Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. What's up, guys? Just wanted to give you a warning that we recorded today's pod before Mac Jones missed Patriots practice. Now, a couple of things on that. First of all, Mike Reese reports it's not expected to affect Mac's status on Sunday afternoon. Tom Pellicero from the NFL Network reporting that it's a stomach issue for Mac. It's a non-COVID thing. So if it was COVID, of course, he couldn't play on Sunday. And the good news is the silver lining in all this is it's not going to affect Max status on Sunday afternoon against the Pittsburgh Steelers. But a couple of things just real briefly on this. First of all, it's unfortunate that it's just another thing <laughs> that's an obstacle for the quarterback as we get ready for the second game of the season. He's already dealing with a new offense and a new play caller. Secondarily, he's dealing with back spasms. He was banged up in the opener against the Miami Dolphins. And now he's overcoming an illness as he gets ready for his second game of the season. So not the way you want the season to start for the quarterback. But the good news is he is going to be, unless something crazy happens, he is going to be playing on Sunday. Hope you guys enjoy the pod. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Week two is here. The Patriots and the Steelers. And we're going to talk with my buddy Andrew Filipponi from The Fan in Pittsburgh and FanDuel TV to get the Steelers side of things in just a little bit. But man, this one, it does really feel big. And I don't want to overemphasize one game, but this feels like a massive game for the Patriots. You look at the history of the league. Only one team has made the playoffs after starting 0-4, and that was the 1992 Chargers. The reason that I bring that up, and I understand the Patriots are only 0-1, but you look at the schedule after this. The Patriots have the Ravens in Week 3 in the home opener, 
who they look like a wagon right now. And I get it. They played the Jets, but that Ravens team finally healthy. They were battling for a playoff spot last year for the majority of the season, despite all those injuries. That team looks really good. And then you look at week four, you play Aaron Rodgers and the Packers in Lambeau. And I get it. They didn't look good in the first week of the season, but it's Aaron Rodgers, the two-time defending MVP. But out of those next three games that we're looking at right now, counting the Steelers game in week two, the Ravens and the Packers, this looks to be the most winnable game for a multitude of reasons. But even if you look at it going forward and you look and you try to figure out how the Patriots are going to at least be competitive for the majority of the season, even if you thought they were going to take a little bit of a step back this year, which I was in that camp, you thought that they would be very competitive at least, right? You didn't think that this would be a team that won five or six games, and that's why you don't want to be going down this slippery slope, right? And the schedule, this is the good news. After that game against Green Bay, it does lighten up. You get Detroit. Cleveland without Deshaun Watson, good team, but no Watson, Chicago, and the New York Jets. But if you start 0-4, then you're doubting pretty much everything, right? Is this offense a disaster? What the hell is Patricia doing? Those are the questions that we're going to be asking. And quite frankly, those will be fair questions if you start the season 0-4. So they need something to build off of, right? And I'm not saying that winning against, say, the Packers in week four or the Ravens in week three is impossible. But if you lose this game to the Pittsburgh Steelers without T.J. Watt, with Mitchell Trubisky running that offense, with really no running game whatsoever to speak of in Pittsburgh coming into this game either, then it really does look like the Ravens game and the Packers game look almost impossible to win. So they need something just from a confidence perspective. And from a belief perspective as well, they, especially the offense, they need to believe in what they're doing, right? Because you look at what happened last week and it's very difficult to buy into anything they were doing offensively. The Patriots put up just 271 total yards in week one. That was 26 in the NFL behind teams like the Houston Texans and the New York Jets. And remember, the Jets were playing Joe Flacco at quarterback. And if you want to look at some of even the more advanced numbers, if you will, EPA per play, the Patriots were 30th in the NFL last week. That means there was only two offenses that were less efficient than the Patriots. So it just feels like right now, Matt Patricia, this game to me feels like it's more about him than anybody else including the players, including Bill Belichick, it seems like it's about Patricia. Because if you get another piss-poor performance from this offense, we're going to be looking at Patricia. We are not going to be looking at Mac Jones. We are going to be looking at Matt Patricia. Week two is all about the new play caller of the New England Patriots. So if you just look at this game in particular, I believe there's two reasons, big reasons, this game is very winnable. The first one, No T.J. Watt, right? This is the reigning defensive player of the year. And you don't have to worry about him whatsoever in this game. This is a player that ordinarily you'd have to alter your game plan for, much like the Patriots had to do back in the day with J.J. Watt. Now, back then when you had Brady, they basically rendered J.J. Watt ineffective in that game. He basically did nothing in his career against the Patriots. But you would have had to come up with some sort of game plan to neutralize T.J. Watt. That's not part of the equation anymore. Now, they do have some good players defensively. Minka Fitzpatrick had a huge game last week. Highsmith's a pretty good player. Hayward, etc., But you don't have that game changer that they ordinarily have that puts that defense over the top. So you do catch a break there in terms of they don't have one of the best players in the sport from a defensive perspective in T.J. Watt. Here's the concerning thing, though, on that side of the ball. Brian Flores is a member of the coaching staff. 
And Brian Flores, I get technically he's not the defensive coordinator, but he's going to have a lot of input there, you would think, especially this week with the familiarity that he has with the Patriots. And he's had Bill Belichick's number and he's had Mac Jones's number. If you look at Mac going back to last season against the Dolphins, week 18, that was his lowest grade from Pro Football Focus. He had a 47.8 grade via Pro Football Focus in week 18, the worst of the season for Mac. And what Brian Flores did is he brought the heat. Mac Jones against the Blitz in that game, just 5 for 10, 50%, a 74.2 rating. When he wasn't blitzed, he was 15 for 20, completed 75% of his passes, and a 99.6 rating. So that tells you Brian Flores is going to be letting everybody know there, we have to get after Mac. So first of all, Mac needs to prove that he can beat the Blitz. We told you last week or two weeks ago, whatever it was, that Mac Jones had the second most attempts out of the Blitz last season. So he's blitzed a whole lot last year. And his numbers against the Blitz were not particularly great. He completed 63.8% of his passes compared to 69.5% when he wasn't blitzed. Okay, so the Steelers, we know they're going to come after Mac, especially because of the fact they don't have their best player. It may have been different if they didn't have TJ Watt, but they don't have that elite pass rusher, if you will. So they're going to have to find a way to generate the pass rush via their scheme. And I would expect that to be more of a Blitz-heavy thing. So... Which brings us back to the whole thing. It's not just about Mac. This becomes about Matt Patricia. The players need to find a way to believe in him. And I know that sounds crazy, but they need to believe in Matt Patricia. That means he has to be better in terms of his game planning. So one thing, and we referenced the RPOs, the play action last week, but another thing they really didn't do, they had no screen game, just three screens last week that the Patriots ran in terms of Mac passing attempts. They got to have more of that this week. Make life easier for Mac, especially if they're going to be coming with blitzes. And the other thing is I would just say, get Ramondre Stevenson the ball in this game, especially now with the injury to Ty Montgomery. You would hope that that means we're going to see more of Ramondre Stevenson because he played just 25% of the snaps last week, and he feels like the perfect candidate to be heavily involved in a screen game. All right, so first reason this game is winnable, no TJ Watt. Matt Patricia is going to do something offensively to help Mac and help the rest of the guys in that locker room. Or if he doesn't, they're going to stop believing in him. It's one thing for us not to believe in him, but he needs the players to believe in him. The other thing is, on the flip side of this, the reason this game is really winnable is the Patriots defense was fine last week. Okay, he had the one miscue at the end of the half. But quite frankly, I put that more and look, the players got to make a tackle. I acknowledge that. But I put that more in Bill than anything else. If that time management with a buck 17 left not calling a timeout that was fucking horrible okay so i put that more on bill but other than that the patriots defense was pretty good in that game the steelers last season really struggled in terms of their offensive line they were 27th in the nfl in terms of their run block grade via pro football focus it isn't much better this year they have real issues their running game last week really non-existent just 3.4 yards per rush against the Bengals, and Najee harris is banged up And he was south of four yards of carry last year because they don't have a good offensive line. So Harris banged up. You look at the fact that they didn't run the ball particularly well last year. They tried to. It just was not efficient whatsoever. So the run game on Sunday should not be an issue for the Patriots. Okay. And furthermore, that offense should not be trouble for the Patriots. The Steelers had 13 first downs last week. They played overtime. They had 13 first downs. That was 31st in the NFL. Only the Cowboys had fewer. And Mitchell Trubisky is their quarterback, okay? He beat out Kenny Pickett to win this job. So not only does he suck, but his deficiencies from last week are something the Patriots should be able to expose. And what I mean by that is this. 
Mitchell Trubisky last week, or I should say, let me start with the Patriots side. The Patriots last week blitzed 16 times. That was 44.4% of dropbacks for Tua, the fourth highest rate in the NFL last week, the Patriots in terms of bringing the pressure. Trubisky last week was blitzed on 13 dropbacks. On those 13 dropbacks, he was 3 for 12. So based on what Trubisky did last week, And based on what the Patriots did last week, this should play into their hand. Not to mention, if you take away the first or the second read from Trubisky, he's really bad. More than two and a half seconds in the pocket last week. He was just five for 11, 45.5%, and he had a 68 passer rating, right? So when you add all that up together, not good against the blitz, not good when he has to hold on to the ball. The Patriots should expose him. I I really don't see a way, and maybe this is going to sound arrogant, but I don't see a way that Trubisky has success against the Patriots defense. I really don't. And if he does, well, the Patriots have even bigger problems than we thought. We know about the issues offensively. Well, then you're really questioning what the hell is going on defensively as well. So biggest thing to me is this game comes down to plain and simple. It's going to be a better game plan from an offensive perspective. Use some of that stuff that Mac is good at, the play action, the RPOs, as we mentioned earlier in the week. And Matt Patricia, he was hammered after week one, and deservingly so, with the lack of creativity he showed from an offensive perspective and the fact that your best offensive weapon, Kendrick Bourne, was on the bench. Matt Patricia deserved to be criticized heavily last week. Can you imagine what that's going to be like if he has another poor game plan and the offense has another effort like it did last week, well, then this Patricia thing is going to be on absolute steroids, right? So this becomes a must win for the Patriots for a multitude of reasons. And one of the reason is this. If you look at the Patriots schedule and you look at the quarterbacks they have to play, we already know they played Tua, but this week is Trubisky, then it's Lamar, Rogers, Goff, Brissett, Fields, Wilson, Matt Ryan, Wilson again, Cousins, Allen, Murray, Carborough, Tua, and Allen. So if you look at the quarterbacks that Mac is better than in that group, Tua twice, but of course you already lost to him. I will die on the hill that Mac's better than Tua. Trubisky, Mac is definitely better than him. He's better than Goff. He's better than Jacoby Brissett. And I know Justin Fields played really well last week, and I liked him coming out of the draft, but Mac right now is a better quarterback than Fields, and he's better than Zach Wilson. So I'm not a big Carr fan or a big Matt Ryan fan, but Carr was better than Mac last season. We can't argue against that. And Matt Ryan, he's been very up and down, but I'll give him the edge just because he's the veteran, so to speak. So that means basically eight of your 17 games, you have the quarterback advantage. And you already lost one of those eight, as we mentioned with Tua. So that's seven left. You almost have to win all seven. At least six of those games. And of course, Trubisky fits into this category. And even if you look at it, so the Steelers, we know, still a good defense despite the Watt injury, although I think the Patriots should be able to have a decent day there. The Lions, the Browns, who have a good roster, the Bears, the Jets twice, and the Dolphins, who the Patriots, of course, already lost to. So basically, you got to win at least six of those seven games. You would hope seven. But then you look at the other 10 games that you're looking at in terms of, or I should say, it's probably going to take 10 games to get into the playoffs from the AFC. So that means out of the rest of those games where you don't have the superior quarterback, you're going to have to win three or four of those games, depending on what you do against the quarterbacks you're better than to get to those 10 wins. So that's the Packers with the MVP, the Colts who beat the Patriots last year with an inferior quarterback in Carson Wentz, 
the Vikings, who may have the best receiver in the league. The Cardinals, that game is in Arizona, although that's a good time to get the Cardinals later on in the season because Murray usually fades. The Raiders with all their weapons. The Bengals with Burrow and his crew. The Bills, who didn't punt the past couple times they played the Patriots, and we all know how good that team is. So that's why I don't believe it's crazy to say that this game is a must-win for the Patriots based on the quarterbacks you have coming up, based on losing that game to Tua, and based on the teams you play in Week 3 and Week 4. Because it seems like it's going to be awfully difficult to win those teams with the superior quarterbacks on your schedule. So if they don't win this game, I do feel like we'll be in a position where it is sort of panic time for the Patriots. Because then you're looking at the schedule, you're saying, well, they couldn't beat Tua and the Dolphins. They can't beat the Steelers with Mitchell Trubisky and without TJ Watt. Where are the wins coming from? There will be a real panic here in New England if the Patriots don't pick up a win on Sunday against the Steelers team. All right, a lot more to get into. My buddy Andrew Filipponi from The Fan in Pittsburgh and FanDuel TV will break down the Steelers' side of things as we get ready for Week 2 in the NFL. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the fan in Pittsburgh and FanDuel TV as well, it's Andrew Filipponi. Pony, what's up, man? Ryan, uh, it's good to see your face again. I think I made a pit stop to Boston around this time last year, and uh, we chatted it up. You were doing uh, Red Sox post games, and they were what? Like they were? I don't think they were locked into the playoffs yet. And then they went on that great run, so you got lucky in that respect. And now you're even luckier. Uh, working with these guys, which has got to yeah. be a blast. Yeah, man, it's been a lot of fun so far. And I don't miss having to cover the Red Sox every day now because they suck, man. It's been it's been difficult to watch a team go from two wins away from a World Series to behind the Baltimore Orioles pony did, in the division. Did, did you are you aware of the fact, Brian, that where I am in Pittsburgh, Dennis Eckersley is like a god here? <laughs> Are you aware of that, that they wanted to build a statue for the guy? Do you know the backstory? Yes. Was it the hodgepodge of nothingness? That's yes, how, it that's was. That's what he said about the roster. He said the Pirates lineup was a hodgepodge <laughs> of nothingness. And usually, you know, you know the way it worked. Usually, like, if if your big brother makes fun of you, it's fine. But if the kid down the street does, you get pissed. Like, you're, you get protective about your teams and you get very parochial. But the Pirates have pissed so many people off and offended so many people here for so long that Eckersley saying that made him like a deity in this town. So I know X retiring, but I bet for that week, he probably didn't have to buy many beers while he was in Pittsburgh. Everybody loved that. No, nah, I mean, he has so many of those too, but that is awesome that he's a hero in Pittsburgh now too. But he's, he's got so many of those, like last night they had a play where they had two errors on the same play. And he said, that is just a horrendous play. So he hasn't lost his <laughs> fastball pony. I mean, we're sad that he's leaving because he's such an unbelievable broadcaster. But I mean, I yep. get it wants to spend more time with his family. But have you on, of course, to talk about the Steelers and the Patriots game coming up this week. So what were your thoughts? So after the game, the Steelers pick up a huge divisional win against the Bengals, of course, the team that went to the Super Bowl last year. But at the same time, T.J. Watt goes down with that pec injury. So what was sort of the reaction of Steelers fans? 
Well, I didn't do much celebrating Sunday night because I thought they won the battle but lost the war. Because uh, TJ Watts just the second best defensive player in the league for me after Aaron Donald. And I've never seen them win without him. They were 0-4-1 in games where he was either injured, didn't play, or got hurt in the middle of the game, and they had to finish the job and couldn't without him. So he's just that irreplaceable. Uh, so when he comes off the field and he's mouthing, I tore my pec, you immediately Google torn pec and recovery, and it's a long-term thing. It would have kept him out for the entire year if it was torn right off the bone. So I think the fact that he's coming back in six weeks uh, placates and pacifies a lot of uh, concerns that I have about them as far as what they do for the entire season. I think they can maybe tread water, but yeah, when I, when that happened Sunday, Brian, I was like, all hope is gone. This team was probably a fringe playoff team at best before uh, their best player got injured. And now they're going to have to make do without him. Well, the good news is for the Steelers is kind of a soft landing in terms of the offense. They're going up against the Patriots this yeah. week based on the way they look last week. But who's like the guy they're looking for now? I mean, Highsmith had what, three sacks last week? I know he didn't play as much last year, but is that the guy they're looking to? Yeah, I think so. Highsmith almost, uh, you know, he had six sacks all last year. So he's halfway to what he did in 2021. They're expecting a breakout year from him. Uh, Brian, he's a third round pick from Charlotte in his third year. So small school guy, uh, you know, did not always play football, was a baseball player, I think, in high school. And so they looked at him as a raw player. He, I think, is ahead of their or was ahead of their kind of plans for him because they brought in Melvin Ingram last year and ended up getting benched and pouted his way out of Pittsburgh. But yeah, that game from him stood out to me because Jonah Williams is the Bengals left tackle and he was the one guy back from Bengals O-line last year. So he did not have the excuse of trying to find cohesion or chemistry in a new system. He was there with Joe Burrow and he still mm. couldn't protect his blind side. So that was a fabulous first impression from Highsmith. The question just becomes now that pass protection slides over, how is he going to perform? And he also has a tendency to get hurt in games too, Brian. Okay, that's interesting because the other part of that is how they line him up and how they use him against the Patriots. And the thing that scares me, Pony, is Brian Flores, you almost forget, like, as a Patriots fan, that, oh, shit, like, yeah, he's part of the coaching staff now. I know technically he's not the defensive coordinator, but last year, I look at Mac Jones, his worst game of the season, from my perspective, like, the Buffalo game, that was DNP. He really didn't play that game where he attempted three passes. Yeah. I gave him a DNP, just handing the ball off, but was Miami in Week 18. So I'm interested how much of an imprint Flores has on that defense. Well, I think he has a lot. I think he's probably as more say than even their defensive coordinator does. Tomlin ultimately is the person who calls the plays on defense. It's it's interesting. It's a lot like how New England likes to be secretive with who's actually calling plays. Tomlin and the defensive coordinators are always in cahoots with each other to not give away who has final authority and who's actually making the call on Sundays. But then when Keith Butler got uh, fired – or let go or retired, however they spun it after last year, he came out and said, no, Tomlin does everything. So that kind of gave away the ghost there, peeled back the curtain. And I don't think that's changed, but I think he trusts his lieutenants now more than he has in the past. And I think we saw in some of the defensive looks they had, especially near the goal line against Cincinnati, some things that were calling cards of Flores, both in Miami 
and even a little bit in New England when he was working under Bill. So I think it's probably after their draft pick a picket, the best thing the Steelers did all offseason was to bring Brian Flores here to help out with the defense that last year was 24th in scoring Brian and was dead last against the run. Yeah, and Flores, I mean, he's he was really good his final year here with the Patriots. He was an upgrade over Patricia, who, of course, is now calling offensive <laughs> plays for the Patriots. And he did a really good job as head coach as well, swept Bell, uh, Bill Belichick, of course, last year. But you mentioned George Pickens. So, Pony, you got to look at this from a Patriots perspective. So whenever Bill drafts a receiver now, everybody gets worried, of course, the Nikhil Harry pick. And we were all excited about Tyquan Thornton, a lot of speed out of Baylor. But then two picks later... George Pickens goes to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And you know the history there with the Steelers and their success, of course, drafting receivers. So high, how high are they on Pickens? Well, in the preseason, they acted like there was a chance the guy, I don't think he would so much beat out Deontay Johnson for receptions who had over 100 last year and they gave big money to this offseason, gave him a two-year extension. But you know, they installed him as the starter immediately. They play with three receivers like most teams. And he was out there with Claypool and Johnson for, since like the first week of training camp. And Tomlin usually doesn't do that. He'll play rookies in week one, but he usually makes them earn it gradually during training camp in the preseason. And he just didn't even bother to do that with Pickens. The problem is their offense has a hard time getting playmakers the ball because their offensive line is so bad their quarterback isn't very good and Trubisky and their offensive coordinator is pathetic. He really has no right being. He doesn't. He was a college coordinator. He was fired from a bunch of college teams. He was at Pitt for one year and the Steelers work out right next door to Pitt. I think he made a positive impression there. And then he was at Maryland. He was the interim coach at Maryland, Brian, when Tomlin's son was on the Maryland football team. Hmm. So I think that's another reason why, probably the biggest reason why, He's working in the NFL as an offensive coordinator. No other team would consider him as an offensive coordinator, but he knows people in high places with the Steelers. And their offense looked the same in week one as it did last year. So much of the debate in Pittsburgh has been about, was their offense held back last year by Ben? Well, now that Ben's gone, we saw pretty much the same thing with Trubisky. So they either got to now point the finger at Trubisky and say he's not good enough or it's the coordinator, the guy that's calling the plays. So my guess is it's probably more the coordinator, and that's what keeps George Pickens, who is incredible. Uh, the guy should have been a first-round pick, but just the torn ACL at Georgia in his last year there uh, dragged his stock down. But he can go up and get the ball. He's fast. He runs good routes. He's got excellent hands. Uh, in an offense that was competent, Brian, they would find a way to involve him and make him a big playmaker right now. Well, and that's interesting, too, that you say that no other place are to be an offensive coordinator. It sounds very familiar to the situation that the Patriots have right now in terms of yep. <laughs> their offensive play caller. But speaking of Matt Canada, last week I was looking back and I was looking at the numbers for Trubisky. And I felt like, OK, with Ben out of the picture, maybe they use his legs a little bit more. But they only ran the ball three times with them. And I believe only one of those pony was a designed run. Do you expect them to run the ball at least a little bit more with Trubisky, considering he's I, not a great passer? I did. I mean, all Tomlin talked about even last year, it was kind of disrespectful, actually, how often he would bring up quarterback mobility while Ben was still on the team. And he would say it repeatedly. And... It was, I thought, a passive-aggressive shot at Ben in his last year 
every time he did it. Hmm. Um, and so that was why so many of the draft Knicks figured that Tomlin preferred Malik Willis over Kenny Pickett in the draft, that he just as a defensive coach buys into the concept that when the quarterback is also a runner, it's harder to defend against. So we all figured, plus with the offensive line as bad as it is, that they would try to involve Trubisky more in Cincinnati. But what ended up happening, Brian, is that they are of the mindset here that their defense is going to win them most games. And so they have a prehistoric look at offensive play right now where it's like, don't turn the ball over. We can punt and we'll just try to win every game ugly. And they did that in Cincinnati right from the beginning because Joe Burrow got picked sixth on his second offensive play and they just took the lead and decided to play conservative football pretty much the rest of the day. There was one gadget play where it was like a double flea flicker that ended in a field goal that actually worked. And then they had a brain dead pass play near the end of the fourth quarter when they should have been running the ball to conserve it. But other than that, it was completely play it safe, play not to lose. And that's how they almost blew a game, Brian, where they were plus five in the turnover differential in week one. So Mitchell Trubisky has not been somebody in the past that, of course, has protected the ball. So is so what was sort of the idea that went into starting him over Pickett? Was he just significantly better during training camp? No, they just had this in their mind that they were going to start Trubisky week one, really from the minute they signed him. And they didn't even have a competition. I mean, one of the hmm. biggest one of the biggest misnomers or myths of this entire Steelers uh, build up or lead up to the season was that there was a competition for the starting job. There wasn't. Trubisky got every first team rep in practice from minicamp on. He always played first uh, in every preseason game. Pickett barely got any time with, with the first team offense. Tomlin didn't want, for whatever reason, Pickett to play day one, which I think is a mistake given that Pickett's 24 years old. He's older than Mac Jones. He had 50-plus college starts. And the biggest thing they said about him when they drafted him, Brian, was that he was NFL ready and that his last year in college was pretty much like an NFL internship where he treated his senior year at Pitt like he was really a pro. So I'm just confused as to why they were so dead set on Trubisky. They're not paying him like a starting quarterback. It's a two-year, $14 million deal. He's an expensive backup, which is something you can afford to do when you've got a quarterback on a rookie contract. So I'm very flummoxed by it. I'm confused by it. I don't think Trubisky played a bad game. I think he made big plays in overtime that actually won them the game. So really no fault of his own. He was more held back by his line and his offensive coordinator. But all things being equal, Brian, I think Pickett could have won that game on Sunday too. And I think even right now, Pickett is the better quarterback. So do you think it's one of these things where the first bad game Trubisky has, they make the switch to Pickett? Uh, I do. I think it, I think it might depend if it happens on Sunday against the Patriots. I think they'll go back to Trubisky because it's a short week. They're week three games, a Thursday nighter in Cleveland. Hmm. And I just don't think they want with almost no practice time whatsoever for Pickett to make his first start there. But short of a situation like that, where there's a scheduling quirk. Yeah. I think if Trubisky's terrible, they'll go uh, to Pickett. Brian Flores is interesting in this situation, too, because he had to deal with the Ryan Fitzpatrick-Tua situation in Miami. 
And he's gotten a lot of criticism for that for when he elected to go to Tua. But I don't think Trubisky is going to play as well as Fitzpatrick did, Brian. And I also think actually because Tua was coming off that hip injury, I think Pickett's closer to playing than even Tua was then. So I think if Flores does have input, he's probably telling Tomlin that, why are we wasting our time with a stopgap quarterback? Let's go with a guy who's really not a green quarterback or raw quarterback whatsoever and showed in the preseason that he can get the job done. Yeah, I always felt like, too, at Miami, Flores wanted to play Fitzpatrick, but he was pressured to play Tua. He wanted to win and play the better player. I mean, they were upset with him in his first year because he won too many games that, like, screwed yep. up their draft position. So I'm with you. If Trubisky's a better player, I'm sure. I mean, excuse me, if Pickett's a better player, I'm sure that Flores is letting Tomlin know about that. So you mentioned the offensive line. It was an issue last year for the Steelers as well. And Najee Harris was under four yards a carry. Not saying it was his fault. Now he's banged up. So what do you expect from him going for behind that offensive line? that's not great not much I really don't you know I think that pick now is coming back to haunt the Steelers because they drafted a running back before they had their offensive line sewn up uh he's shown that for as immensely talented as he is can do it all caught over 70 balls last year out of the backfield that he's not the type of running back though that when the hole isn't there or when he's got guys all over him in the backfield is going to break out of it and turn it into a huge play. Um, you know, he's not Derrick Henry or he's not Barry Sanders where he makes people miss. He's really good, but you don't see it behind this line. Now on top of that, Brian, it's interesting. So Tomlin said in training camp that Najee had his foot stepped on and then the guy missed three weeks. When he came back and played in the preseason, Najee said, I want to just set the record straight. No one stepped on my foot. I had a Liz Frank injury. Now, that kind of thing would get somebody probably cut in New England. The reason why I think it happened here is because Najee's a very prideful, sensitive guy, and he didn't want it to look like he was dogging it and nursing an injury where someone stepped on his foot. I think he felt like the coach made him look bad in that situation. But what's happened since is that he said he had a Liz Frank injury, that midfoot sprain, which is a dreaded injury. And the Steelers have done everything to downplay that since. They even went as far as to say that in the uh, Cincinnati game, Najee left because it was now an ankle sprain. It was a new injury. It was a high ankle sprain. Well, I've had enough people tell me that that's not true, that it's actually an aggravation of his Liz Frank injury. So he was a limited participant early in the practice week. My guess is he will play, but I think he's far from 100%. And they have an undrafted running back from Oklahoma State, Jalen Warren, Brian. Mm -hmm. that I think all, I think for this game, if they didn't let the politics of football and locker room dynamics play into it and just played the better guy, I think Warren should get more snaps and more opportunities than Najee Harris. But I just don't think Tomlin will do that. Wow, that's crazy. So there's some drama going on with the Steelers, too. The Patriots, Pony, they're dealing with a situation where, in my opinion, their best receiver from last year, Kendrick Bourne, played two snaps. So it seems like the Steelers are dealing with drama yep. as well. But it's interesting this week, Belichick was talking about the fact that they haven't played in basically three years, the Patriots and the Steelers. So I'm wondering, Pony, there in Pittsburgh, obviously their number one rivalry is with the Ravens. But where do the Patriots sort of rank on the pecking order for the Steelers? Well... I felt like for a few years there, they were actually in in the, in the minds of Steelers fans, number one. Wow. 
when the Steelers were, you know, beat by them in the AFC championship game in 2016. And then 2017, they were 13 and three and Tomlin predicted they were going to meet in the AFC championship game. Uh, Le'Veon Bell before the Jacksonville playoff game said, can't wait to play new England. And then they gave up 48 points to Blake Bortles. So you had that situation. Then you had the Jesse James. Is it a fumble? Is it a catch the next year? Then they come back the year after that. and They have a backup running back, Jalen Samuels, who has a great game. They upset New England, but they missed the playoffs. Uh, then Antonio Brown signs there. So there's all of these chapters that got added into the story of the rivalry from the Steelers perspective, where it's like, you know, we want to beat them in a game that counts while Belichick and Brady are still together. And it kind of happened in 2019, but then they didn't make the playoffs. So there was no reward at the end of the year for beating New England. It was kind of a hollow victory. Now I just feel like it's different, Brian. Yeah. You know, like I just know from talking to my listeners here, I feel like the bloom is even off the Belichick rose. Like I know that fans here despise the guy because what happened in 01 and 04 with Spygate and losing those AFC championship games. And a lot of Steelers players have, you know, continued to, you know, add to that, belabor that and make it sound like that's the reason why they lost those games. But without Brady there, I just feel like the whole scepter of this rivalry, the whole allure of it is gone. And don't get me wrong, Steelers fans would love to run up the score and blow out Belichick and send him out a loser and do all of those things on Sunday. But I just don't sense that the animosity is there because you don't measure yourself up against the Patriots anymore. You don't look at New England and Pittsburgh and say, hey, what kind of team are we in the AFC? Can we really win the Super Bowl? What happens against the Patriots is going to determine or decide a lot of that. They're just not one of those teams any longer. So I think that's the issue as far as ranking them currently among other NFL teams. I would put the Browns ahead of them. I put the Ravens ahead of them and I put the Bengals ahead of them for sure. Yeah, and it does feel that same way from a Patriots perspective without Brady, because I remember looking forward to the Steelers game every year. I mean, I go back to that 2016 AFC title game. That's when I mean Ben had an outstanding season that year. The Patriots, we were a little bit worried that the Patriots could lose that game, but I'll never understand why. And I know Dick LeBeau is one of the best defensive coordinators of all time. I'll never understand why he always showed Tom the same defense. Like Tom was so great against the Blitz and he continued to do it. It was perplexing to me, Pony, that he never changed things up. Well, that's and that honestly, Brian, has been, I think, when we've compared and contrasted Tomlin to Belichick, that's been one of the biggest issues I've had is that I felt like Belichick, depending on the opponent, depending on what he had, his personnel, week to week, they were a different team. Now, they still had Brady, but defensively and even offensively, they would adjust a lot based on the opponent. I really think the Steelers are the type of team more so under Tomlin than Cower, where it's like, this is what we do best. We're going to coach those things. We're going to play to those strengths. And we're basically going to dare the other team to beat us at what we do. And they coach more about themselves than they coach the opponent. Uh, I know that because I have friends that have played for Tomlin and have played for the Steelers who've said as much, that it's way more about them than it is the other team. And I think when you get to 
you know, those situations where the margin between the two teams is razor thin. I just don't think you can always count on that. So, you know, that's why you probably saw them play def- play defense that way because it worked against everybody else. They thought they were great at it, and they thought on that Sunday it would work against Tom Brady. Yeah, and I got to get your take on the Antonio Brown thing. So he's here basically for a game, Pony, and the offense looks like incredible. Like, oh, my God, Brady's got a number one receiver again. This is going to be great. Then, of course, that's all he played for the Patriots. He goes with Tom. They do win a Super Bowl, but then the following year, he loses his mind. Of course, famously takes his shirt off and leaves the game. So, And then the uh, the whole situation prior to the Patriots with the Raiders. Raiders. So how did the Steelers keep Antonio Brown, I guess, from going – nuts i guess i mean he had outbursts and all that but how did they make it work for so long because they pretty much let him do whatever he wanted to do i mean there were very there were very few restrictions placed on him team rules really did not apply to him he would do something egregious like videotape to facebook a post game celebration after winning a playoff game that was live where tomlin's ripping into the patriots And there would be, you know, a scolding and that was it. So he was unchecked, Brian. He had free reign. He knew it. Now, I will say, and to be completely fair here, you know, I think think a lot of guys took advantage of that. I think Ben took advantage of that. Not, Not to the extreme that Antonio did, but, you know, Tomlin really is cut from the John Madden cloth of like, you guys are men. You guys are pros. Like, as long as you give me the results on Sunday, I don't really care about the rest of the week. And I think the same qualities in Brown that Brady revered, the whole six-round pick who turned himself into uh, you know, a special teams player who went on to be one of the greatest wide receivers of his generation, mostly because of his work ethic, and desire to be great, I think that Tomlin respected that so much that the rest of the crap that went on that divided the team, uh, you know, on game days would blow up into confrontations. He'd go AWOL and he'd miss meetings. He wouldn't show up for practices sometimes. Like, they just accepted all that because they still felt at the end of the day like he was going to be productive because on his own time, he was putting the work in. So, you know, it finally came to a head where there was such a big blow up that it was basically like, is it Ben? Is it AB? And AB was up for another contract. So they made the decision to trade him. But that's really why it worked here, because Tomlin did not rule with an iron fist and was under the impression that AB was going to come through on Sunday, regardless of what kind of shenanigans he had to put up with throughout the throughout the week and throughout the season. Yeah, I mean, that guy is out of his mind. I mean, I still can't believe what he did to Brady after Brady basically saved the guy's career, and then he's (laughs) trashing Tom. It's incredible to me. Hey, Pony, before we let you go, of course, with 93.7 The Fan in Pittsburgh, but also you do stuff for FanDuel TV, anything, and it seems like it's going to be a sloppy game on Sunday, anything you're liking in this Patriots-Steelers game? Yeah, I actually think that what you're going to see happen as an overreaction is that most people that would come on and get asked that question would just tell you to bet the under that they would say both offensive lines don't look good. Both offenses look anemic, look incompetent. Don't bet the over. But I think the Steelers defense, I I just think for them, 
they can they can talk a big game about next man up and you know we've got all these other stars that are going to fill the void of TJ Watt. Brian, last year they lost their nose tackle in week two. Tyson Alualu, who's a bit player, he's a nice player, but he's not a star. And after he went out, they turned into after that the worst run defense in the NFL. Which goes to show you with this defense, the subtraction of one player can ruin the whole thing. They still had Watt, Minka, and Hayward last year, and they were a below-average defense. So I'm not convinced that without Watt, they're actually going to show any resistance, You know, in any way duplicate or replicate what they did pressure-wise against Cincinnati last week. So when the player prop comes out on passing yards for Jones, I'm going to bet the over. Because I think it's going to be ridiculously low. And I think most bettors are just going to jump to, oh, it's like 195 yards or 215 yards. Bet the under. It's a lock. Uh, I don't trust the Steelers' defense without Watt. So I think Jones, even with all of the Matt Patricia BS, I actually think he comes here and plays a decent game. I would be on his over in this one, Brian. I like it, Pony, and I hope you're right, because that means maybe the Patriots will actually win a football game. And it also means Kendrick Bourne may be on the field. That is Andrew Filipponi from 93.7 The Fan in Pittsburgh, FanDuel TV as well. Pony, thanks so much for the time, man. You bet, I really Brian, appreciate for it. you anytime. Are you going to have Jastrzemski on this thing? you got to break his balls a little bit more. We what? So we did. For some reason, did you know he's a Miami fan? He's a Dolphins fan. Yeah, because so of we, Marino. Did he give you the whole backstory? Yeah. Oh, I went to a game. I like the 13 and the colors. Did he do that whole <laughs> Yes, he said, he did tell us about the colors. So we had him on yeah. to preview the Dolphins. We'll probably have him on to preview the Jets as well. <laughs> yeah, Thanks, I actually Pony. like the Dolphins, Brian. I think I think they're for real. I'm buying stock in them. Well, I'll tell you this: Mike McDaniel outcoached Belichick last week. That's for damn sure. And yeah. he's definitely got a better idea of what he's doing offensively than the Patriots. See you, Brian. All right, Pony. Appreciate it, man. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Three great words. Free, fries, Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax must update rewards. All right, well, that's an interesting thought process from Pony in terms of the gambling angle in this one, looking at the over there. But if you look at this, too, and we'll get to our greatest Boston bet of the week here, is... If you look at Mitchell Trubisky's completion line in this one, it's 20 and a half. Okay, so I'm on the under on that one just because if you look at Trubisky last week, he only had 26 passing attempts in regulation before they went into overtime. So I'm on Trubisky going under 20 and a half completions in this game on Sunday. And quite frankly, if he goes under or if he goes over 20 and a half, the Patriots have real trouble. All right, we got time for a call here. So let's hit that 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Hi, I'm John calling from Atlanta. I have a question for you about, you know, Matt Jones's uh, potential development. Someone on your website, The Ringer, ranked him uh, not as high as I would have thought in his quarterback rankings and said he needed to develop physically. I think he needed to be stronger. And I heard in the offseason that he was 
maybe doing some weight. I'm not a super knowledgeable football fan, a bit of a lay person, but watching on the first game, I felt like some of the balls did need a bit more zip. Like how much can a person at that age uh, uh, develop physically if that's one of the limitations, if he needs to be, if he needs to have a stronger arm? Uh, what can we respect in that regard when we think about his improvement? Uh, thanks very much. Bye. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So a couple of things there. First of all, Tom House basically came out in the offseason and said he could help Mac Jones improve his arm strength. And I give Mac credit. He went out and he worked out with Tom House. Now, I do think there are some limitations to that, right? I mean, if you think about it, he's never going to have a Patrick Mahomes or a Justin Herbert or an Aaron Rodgers level arm. But he can certainly improve that. I mean, think about Tom Brady. Tom Brady's arm is significantly stronger now at the age of 45 than it was when he came into the NFL. So I don't think the arm strength issue is going to be a massive thing for Mac going forward. In fact, we talked to James White earlier in the week, and he referenced the fact that he throws a pretty good deep ball. And if you go back to his collegiate numbers, his numbers on deep passes were really good. Now, from a Patriots angle on this going forward in terms of Mac, I feel like It's more about helping Mac from a play calling standpoint, from a scheme perspective, right? Because he's not going to be the guy that can just carry your team on a week to week basis. So you got to find the things that work for Mac Jones and Matt Patricia in week one really didn't dig into any of those things. And that's why I'm really interested to see what the game plan looks like this week against the Steelers. Are they going to incorporate more RPOs? Are they going to incorporate more play action rather than just two play action passes? And then the most important thing is your most dynamic receiver. We need to see Kendrick Bourne on the field because naturally Kendrick Bourne should make Mac Jones's life easier. And I'm not putting him in the family photo of the best receivers in the NFL. But look at all these quarterbacks when they get good weapons. It's crazy. Their production goes up. The Patriots best weapon was on the bench. So we need to see him on Sunday as well. All right, I did want to get to one Red Sox angle because Brian Bayo pitched on Wednesday night and he was absolutely tremendous again. And if you look at this organization, they really haven't had a homegrown pitching prospect since Clay Buckles in terms of in the starting rotation, right? I'm not talking about relievers. I mean, at one point, Darwinson Hernandez was the number one pitching prospect in the Red Sox organization, and we all know him. He refuses to throw strikes, right? But if you look at Clay Buckles, Really high highs. He had the no hitter. He started that 13 season 12 and 1. He had a 174 ERA that season. But the problem is he only made 16 starts that season. So with Clay Buckholz throughout his career, the issue was he dealt with a lot of injuries. The stuff was always there. He just dealt with so many injuries. John Lester was great before Buckholz, as we all know, and he was lowballed by the organization after that great 13 run. But you go back to 2013, that playoff run, 34 and two-thirds innings, a 156 ERA. So that's probably the last really good starting pitching prospect the Red Sox have had that's had success at the big league level. Buck Holtz did, but it always felt underwhelming just because he was always injured, right? So they've had a lot of homegrown position players, Mookie Betts, of course, Andrew Benintendi, Bogarts, and then from 16 to 18, when they were really good when they won the division for three consecutive years, Rafi came up at the end of that run there. He was good in 18, but 19 is when Devers really took off. But you've really built this organization when they've had success with homegrown players. But in terms of the starting rotation, you haven't had that guy. Brian Bayo in MLB Pipeline's latest ranking was 37th. From Baseball America's latest rating, he was 24th in baseball. And he is down the stretch of the season, and he'll pitch again on Tuesday against the Reds, is a reason to watch the Red Sox. And he was filthy on Wednesday. First of all, let's just start with the mound presence. 
he has a swagger on the mound. You can see him. He's hopping around. He's getting fired up after strikeouts. And I was just thinking, what would this be like at Fenway Park on Wednesday night if the Red Sox were actually good and you had your top pitching prospect up? Like, I almost feel bad for Bayo that he isn't experiencing what Fenway Park is supposed to be like because they're supposed to be competing for a playoff spot right now. So he is just an unbelievable performer, which is awesome to see. And look, I'm not going to go crazy and compare the players because you can't compare anybody to this guy. But just from a mound presence, from a swagger perspective, he does kind of have that Pedro feel to him in terms of he's a performer on the mound, right? He's got that flair, if you will. And that game on Wednesday, the defense, which we've seen often with Bayo, Fucked him. Two errors on the same play, which, oh, by the way, two guys involved in that play were traded for Mookie Betts. That's the side note. But nonetheless, it's been the case ever since Bayo came up with the big league club. His opponent's batting average is 300. But if you look at the expected average, it's 236. And that's basically just based on the quality of the contact, etc. So the defense has not helped Bayo whatsoever. That 64-point gap in terms of the opponent's batting average and the expected Opponent's batting average is the second widest in Major League Baseball of 415 pitchers. So he's less lucky than everybody in baseball except one pitcher. That's ridiculous, right? So he has been really porked by some bad luck. And you look at last night. This is what I really like about Bayo. He's already working on things, right? So he threw his slider last night the second most because, of course, you get a lot of righties in that Yankees lineup. And that was his fourth most used pitch entering last night. And it was really good last night. He threw 24 of them, seven called strikes, which tells you that he's locating better. And he got three whiffs on that pitch as well. We already know that he has a sick changeup and his sinker is nasty as well. So if he adds that slider, if he adds that breaking ball, not adds it, but if that breaking ball gets better, then the sky is really the limit for Bayo because he's already got two really good pitchers. Rather, if he can add a third, it's going to be unbelievable to watch going forward. And then the other thing I like about him is he's you can tell he's hungry. So the game on Tuesday night, he's sitting there talking to Rich Hill about how to grip his curveball because now he wants to incorporate a curveball into his arsenal. And after the game on Wednesday, he says, yeah, I tried two of them. So he's literally just learning this curveball from Rich Hill. And look, I'm sure he's thrown a curveball before, but he hasn't really featured it at the major league level. He talks to Rich Hill in the dugout. He comes out and he's throwing curveballs against the New York Yankees. So this is something to feel really optimistic about going forward from a Red Sox angle is, yeah, this season sucks. Yeah, they underachieved. But Bayo should be somebody rather that the Red Sox pencil, of course, he's going to be in the rotation next year. But he has potential like the outlook prior to this season. A lot of people thought, okay, maybe he's a back end of the rotation guy because he's had some command issues. And we've seen that since he came up to the big league level, but only one walk last night. But if he can be a front end of the rotation guy and you can add one guy in the offseason, I'll keep coming back to Carlos Rodon. Well, then this rotation looks a lot better than it otherwise would. So if you're looking for a silver lining, in this horrible Red Sox season, which I blame Haim Bloom for, Brian Bayo is one of those things. All right. Well, we'll be back on Sunday to recap the Patriots and the Steelers. And as always, you can leave us a voicemail. So if you're pissed off during the game at halftime, whatever, or if you're happy, if Mac Jones is going nuts in this game, you can give us a call at 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Thanks to Isaiah Blakely, James McClellan, and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in a couple of days.